Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, and the podcast is in partnership with PR Daily, which is the preeminent brand for public relations professionals delivering news, advice, opinions, and benchmarking via PRDaily.com. Join me there to find more episodes for the podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do leave a review and share it with your colleagues so that more folks can find it online. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. I have no idea how today's guest sleeps. This is probably the busiest journalist I will talk to this, at least very least this month. Chris Eliza not only is uh, The Point, which is his YouTube show and a newsletter and a variety of other means of how you get your best political news. He is CNN's political reporter, editor at large, host of a podcast called Downside Up and author of a new book. So thanks for taking 30 minutes for me, Chris. Man, it's wonderful to do. Uh, when I hear it that way, it feels more daunting than it does day in and day out. Well, that's good to hear because let me tell you what, I was going through all the fresh stuff that you have out there and I was like, I don't know when he finds time to do all this stuff. The one thing that I was, the, the one skill that has helped me in journalism that I just natively have is the ability to write fast. That And that, that helped with the book too. Just I bet. Because, I mean, you're just, you're churning out I figured I started in January 1st, 2022. I started writing 500 words a day for the book, at least. That was my editor's suggestion, write 500 words a day. And then by the time we get to the summer, you'll have big chunks. You know, they won't be connected necessarily, but you'll have big chunks and it won't feel like you're starting from pure scratch, which was like the best possible advice because 500 words a day doesn't feel terribly daunting. Manageable. And Yeah, totally manageable. And I did it, you know, I would write 500 words about one thing and then 500 words about something else. And so it felt kind of fresh and I was doing interviews through that time too. But that did help because I think when you're talking about a book, you know, 60, 70,000 words, it's really daunting to like think think of, okay, all I have to do is produce 60,000 words is a lot harder than, okay, do 500 words a day and then let's see where we are six months on, which is good. I think good writing advice in general. Is, well, you know, just force yourself to do a little bit every day. And that little bit becomes a lot bit <laughs> as you get as you get down the road. Was like were those was were those 500 words, though, informed by what you're doing in your in your reporting or were they a yes. little bit? They were OK. A, a little of both, uh, honestly. I mean, you know, I I I've been doing the book for about 18 months. So the first six months, first of all, it was a challenge during COVID in that, you know, normally I would go to presidential libraries and and collect a bunch of information about presidents and all that sort of thing. And you really couldn't do that. Most of the presidential libraries were closed. It was hard getting people. I mean, thank gosh for Zoom because I did a ton of interviews on Zoom. Mm -hmm. So I would, a lot of times I would do an interview and then while it was fresh in my mind, I would use, I would write that up that day just so I had that piece done. Cause I, I, I found that it's always easier to do that than go back and try to remember, well, what was the most interesting thing that that person said? So for the most part, yes, as I got further along in it and I was having to come up with the the connective tissue in between the anecdotes and the stories less so it was more just me writing but but certainly for the the first five or six months that's what I was doing and the book is power players and it has a connection between politics and sports tell me a little bit about that okay so I, I have two great loves well three great loves my wife 
sports and politics. So, um, and my kids count as my wife, just in case you didn't think I was family. Yeah. My kids, yes. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to figure out a way that I could smartly write about sports and politics. And, and, and weirdly, despite those being like two huge, uh, uh, sort of parts of culture, mm. there hasn't been that much written about the two of them together. There's obviously been lots written about sports and there's been lots written about politics. Um, so what I wanted to do, what we came up with my age, my, um, uh, editor, Sean Desmond, who's at 12, mm-hmm. uh, who's wonderful and did my first book too. With the idea that we kind of came up with together was, well, let's look at the sports presidents played, loved, and spectated and what that can tell us about who they are and how they govern, oh, which, you know, was a pie in the sky idea. It's not like I had like detailed analysis on each president and what, you know, we, I sort of went into it hoping that this would work. Right. Um, I came out of it just thrilled in that there's so much, you know, like I'll I'll give you one example. Richard Nixon was very into bowling. Um, Obviously he had lanes put in the white house so he could bowl. He would go bowl by himself Mm. frequently. He was a pretty good bowler, 200 plus. Um, uh, But it's so telling that that's what Nixon was drawn to kind of this, like at the time bowling was really big among blue collar workers, uh, much more so than it is now. It was more part of the culture when, when he was president. Um, And just the image of Richard Nixon bowling by himself, you know, frame after frame at the white house. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's very telling of who, who the guy was. He also was, um, he, he is not terribly athletic out of all the presidents he's that I did, which is Eisenhower through Biden. Okay. He's probably among the least athletic, but mm-hmm. you know, he played college football at Whittier college. Really? And it, it, uh, there's a great stories about how he was basically just a tackling dummy. Like they would just <laughs> annihilate him. Like he was little, you know, he's not like striking. He's not like Gerald Ford, like a big, big, strong athletic guy and that he would just like keep getting up and keep getting up. And he talks about his, his college coach. He talked about his college coach when he won the uh, Republican nomination for president about how important it was for him. He learned sort of what life was really like. And this image of Nixon just being like pummeled over and over again on the football field and getting up is, you know, not dissimilar to Richard Nixon's political uh, career, political life, right. Of getting pummeled <laughs> over and over again and just sort of like getting up. Like his best trait was that he was willing to willing and able to absorb massive amounts of punishment. Wow. So, um, it, it's, it was honestly, um, it was sort of a release valve, a, a stress release valve for me to write the book. The, the last couple of years have been you know, starting with 2016 and then going through the pandemic and Trump's reelection and, and, and all that. I mean, it, it has been not an easy thing to do to be a political reporter. Yeah. Um, you know, n- not only because you've been villainized by the president of the United States, but but just the, the subject matter has not exactly been what I would call uplifting. No. Um, you know, it, it feels like the same thing over and over again. And this gave me a real outlet. Like I was talking to people sort of about politics, but not really. Yeah. And it, you know, doing interviews, it just reminded me of what I really liked to do as a reporter, which is talking to people who are interested and interesting and, um, you know, having them tell their stories. There's a lot of great stories in the book, uh, uh, that I, that haven't been reported before. 
and it, it gave me an outlet. So it like I selfishly it was as it was as beneficial for me writing it as as I hope it will be for people reading it because it just gave me something to do that wasn't the like did you see what Trump tweeted today? Yes. Well, yeah, and after a while that gets to be fatiguing for lack of a there's better way to put it. There's it is and and you know the way that he certainly ran his white house was 24 hours a day on, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that you get fatigued from that just, you know, the, and, and like trying to find new angles of and trying to write things that are interesting and trying to hold him to account in, and dealing with the fact that, you know, it's a president who unlike every president I've covered is not terribly interested in the truth is, is exhausting. Yeah. And so the book actually, I know people say like you, you wrote a book to feel relieved of your stress, but in some ways I did. I mean, and I think, as a segue, I want to talk a minute about the podcast, because that also feels to me like a reprieve from political yeah. reporting in some in some degree. I mean, downside up, and you guys examine sort of small things that we take for granted uh, that, yep. you know, if they were not what they are, what would they be, right? And so I probably right. haven't characterized it the right way, but no, no, no. I took a couple minutes to, to listen in. I think it's really fascinating. Tell me a little bit about that project. So this is another... Um, it's, you've, you've got it exactly right. Another thing that was a, a break from my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, we started thinking about this about 14, 15 months ago. You know, I knew I wanted to do a podcast, but I, I, I knew two things. I wanted to do a podcast and I didn't want to do a podcast of me talking to political people. Yeah. You know, like I just, it, not that there's that there, plenty of good podcasts already exist. There's right. doing that. time for something new. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And so I knew I wanted it to be not about politics. I want I knew I wanted it to be about something different. And you know, I feel like I spent so much of my life in journalism trying to think of what if questions, essentially like, well, what if Kevin McCarthy isn't elected speaker on the House floor? What happens then? You know, trying to look around corners mm-hmm. um, as it relates to to like politics, but also life more generally. So that's where the idea came from. We were gonna call it what if. Um, but of course, there's a Marvel series called What If? So you can't oh. just call it What If? Well, that'd be hard <laughs> Marvel, competition. Marvel, yeah, Marvel already <laughs> kind of cornered the market on that. And I didn't think uh, launching a podcast against Marvel would be a wise move. No, so yeah. we, came up with, we came up with Downside Up, which is, you know, I think is meant to convey exactly what you said. What if we changed one thing and it changed a lot of things. One of my favorite episodes is we, we, we did an episode about plastics, which again, you think like plastics, that sounds boring, but we did an episode of like, what if plastics didn't exist? What would replace it? What, what have plastics done environmentally and, and, and broadly speaking to mm-hmm. sort of us as a society, single use plastic. And there's so much interesting stuff in there about how it was developed and why it was developed. And, um, it, it, it's just we did a recent one on uh, what if the NCAA didn't exist, the uh, uh, sort of the governing body of college sports. And I got to talk to people. I mean, one of the things I'm sure you feel this way. One of the things that's really cool is you get to talk to people who are like really smart and interesting. Definitely. I got to talk to Paul Feinbaum of ESPN, Jay Billis of ESPN, talk to an athlete uh, who who was fined by the NCAA because unbeknownst to her, they had put a phone jack in her room that the school had paid for. And that counted as an unfair uh, donation to the student. Oh, no kidding. She was wholly unaware of it. Like, uh. so it was just, again, I, I think that as I grow older in and spend, I mean, I've been doing this since I was 22. Yep. So I'm 46 now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you are naturally drawn to try 
I shouldn't say you, I am naturally drawn to try other things right. um, to just kind of widen the aperture a little bit and, um, you know, try to be more, I always say, people always say Twitter uh, on Twitter, people are like, stay in your lane, just talk about politics, which I get that impulse. But what my response always is, is like, how many people have you ever met that are only interested in one, one issue? Mm-hmm. Right. No. No, there's not. I mean, most of us, it's like, you know, most of us have the job that we do. And then the things that we follow as hobbies or, you know, pastimes. And I just wanted to sort of get a little broader than just like, hey, that's the guy who writes about politics. I'm never going to not write and talk about politics. That's the job. Right. You know, I mean, sure. I think that's the thing. That's the thing that I still do, the, the, especially the writing process. I still do really enjoy that sort mm. of thinking through what it should look like and how it should be framed and all that. But I also think there's more out there. And I wanted to sort of acknowledge that. So well, but you've always been an innovator. I mean, and I remember this back from when oh, you were, nice when you, you when you, you were at the fix. I know it's kind of a new buzzy word, but I mean this as a compliment <laughs> to you. Um, even when you were writing the fix, I mean, what you were producing was new and fresh and fast. And you said you're a fast writer, and that's something that you sort of pride yourself on. But you were quick about that. You know, when news started to break, you'd have a quick sort of like yeah. comparison or like a, a historic note about how this was relevant or something that would draw people in. And then the fix turned into a uh, an online news program at the Washington Post. So you've always kind of been in this lane where you're always yeah. looking for new cool things to do. It is. It's interesting. Thank you for framing it in that positive way. I, I Sometimes I get frustrated in that. Like, I'm not, there isn't the traditional path for me mm-hmm. you know it's like when i worked at the post there was like you were a reporter and then if you're good at that you became an editor that was like how it went i never really wanted to become an editor mm-hmm. and in tv it's like you you're a correspondent and then you become an anchor and like that's not the path for me either <laughs> so it's been a challenge um honestly to, to to try to do things differently but i mean i really do believe that we're in a space I always, so I think of news in like three buckets, essentially Mm -hmm. the what bucket, the now what bucket and the so what bucket news traditionally has spent 95% of its assets, resources, and everything else on the what bucket would this happen? I just want us to spend more of our time and energy on the, so what, why does this matter? And the now what, what's next buckets. It's never going to be, 80% 80% so what and now what and 20% what you always need the what you mm-hmm. always need the spine of this thing happened. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump announced for president. Yeah. Um, but I think telling people in like you said, in a relatively quick ma- manner, why is this thing that he said or thing that he did important, excuse me, important? And now what should you look for? Mm-hmm. I think are real growth areas of journalism. Um I think that's where journalism is headed. Uh, I think people now want their analysis with their news. I mean, I remember when we first started in this, which we won't sort of date uh, a a while ago. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. Leave it vague. You know, we would write the news and then the next day, someone usually more senior than you would come in and do an analysis that would appear when I worked at the Washington post, that would appear in the following day's paper, like a a think piece. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think that it's almost simultaneous. People want to read the news, but then they want to be told what 
why does this piece of news matter in my life? I have yeah. so much going on. Why is this thing important to me? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the space between that news and then analysis has basically been reduced to almost nothing that that people want new want analysis with their news now i think that's helpful um, too I, though i think it's helpful. It, you it, see it, journalism adapt i mm-hmm. hope to that it gives me comfort too i know that uh, especially having gone through this experience that we've gone through over the course of the last six years putting it in the framework of uh this has happened before maybe a little bit differently maybe in another way it gives me comfort in knowing that we transcended that time and hopefully will transcend this time as well and so yeah, for people like me that are matters. having that perspective yeah yeah i mean i i think that that's one benefit of getting older is i i sort of have seen a lot of these things happen before although mm-hmm. i i will say some things that trump has done and does i'm still sort of like dumbfounded by i mean i i will say that there there he he says and does some things that i have not seen before mm-hmm. but yeah i i do think i think people are not everyone because there's there's extremes on both sides who just want to be told that whatever their opinion is is right but i think there's a lot of people who are passive news consumers who, you know, maybe they listen to uh, a news briefing on their Echo or they read Apple News or, you know, they're not they're not totally detached from the news, but they're not in it every day like you and I are. Right. Right. They're not it's not you know, they're not marinating in it. And I think those people, they want to know why is this something that I need to pay attention to? Mm -hmm. Why does, you know, out of all the things that are happening, why is this a thing that I, you know, I should dedicate some three, four, five minutes of my time to? And I feel like whether it's audio, whether it's video, whether it's TV, whether it's written word, I feel like we're all moving toward that space Mm -hmm. of trying to explain that to people. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about it that that's something that I'm looking for. And I feel like others are looking for, especially that analysis. Um, so you are, you're a Georgetown grad. Are you from, are you from the neighborhood originally? I'm, Have you always been I'm here? I'm from Connecticut. Uh-huh. No, I'm from okay. Connecticut, but I've been here since I graduated from Georgetown, which I will date myself and say was in 1998, mm-hmm. coming up on the 25th reunion. I'm not going to tell you that my number is bigger than yours, but I'm telling you my number is bigger than yours. Not by much. Twenty. <laughs> my friends are like, are you are you coming to the 25th reunion? And when you live in the town that the school is in, it's hard to be like, no, I can't make it when they're coming from all over the place. I'm going to so tell you, get it is it. a great reunion. That's a good number. When that number hits, all of a sudden there's something different that happens at 25. Nobody cares about who's who. It's like all the great stories of the old days come back through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I should go then. I, I've been debating. I feel like I kind of have to because if my friends are flying in from like Iowa and Georgia and stuff and I live 15 minutes from the campus, I probably need to go. You got to do it. It's so fun. Yeah. But so did you go to school for journalism? What was your background? Like, did you always no, want to be a journalist? No, um, I wanted to be an author, a fiction writer. Okay. Um, so I wanted to do something with writing. I was an English major in college. Georgetown didn't have at the time, did not have a broad, a, a journalism major mm-hmm. for undergrads. You could, there were graduate classes that you could take. Sure. They do now. It's, it's much more uh, fulsome now than it used to be. Um, but I knew I wanted to write. Um, but I didn't really know sort of how that would work. Like being a novelist at 19 is, I mean, people do it, but I was not in the space that I was going to do it. So it's a very weird 
story that I wound up into it. So George Will, the conservative columnist, um, hires Georgetown undergrads to work in his office. He always has. Um, And so when I was a sophomore, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences approached me and said, we have this set up with George Will. Would you be interested in um, uh, working for him? And like at the time, I really I was not into politics. I mean, I vaguely knew who he was because of his baseball writing, but not because of anything else. (laughs) But I, I think I'm remembering this right. I think he paid twelve dollars an hour, which in 1996 was like for me no job. That was like, pretty good living. He's <laughs> ransom, yeah. Um, so I started to work for him. He has an office in Georgetown, so you could walk walk there. And so I started to work for him three or four days a week. Worked for him in the summers. Um, you know, did uh, spent from my sophomore year to my senior year there working for him. And then after that. You know, I didn't really know what to do, but he suggested that Charlie Cook, who's a political handicapper, mm-hmm. um, needed someone to like work in the office and that he could write me a recommendation. So I was like, OK, I mean, again, it was 98. The economy was not like booming. It wasn't mm-hmm. disastrous, but it wasn't like jobs were everywhere. Right. Um, and so I took that job and I, I, I answered phones for Charlie. I did Charlie's schedule and I sort of learned about politics through him. And at the time, Amy Walter was there mm-hmm. as the House editor and Jennifer Duffy was there as the Senate editor. And they were just great to me. I was like, you know, I was 22 and sort of just soaking everything up. Yeah. Um, and I worked there for three years and then I went and worked at Roll Call newspaper, which I always say was Politico before Politico, mm-hmm. before the Internet. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I got hired at the Washington Post to, as you mentioned, to write a, a blog, which, you know, I always say to people, it feels like ancient history now. But like at the time, major news sites didn't have a blog. They mm-hmm. they sort of took what they put in the print newspaper and put it online. That was the extent. Were you at the dot com? No, Were you at that dot com yes, that they started? Yeah, I was yeah. at the dot com okay. in, in Virginia, mm-hmm. in courthouse in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And um, I was sort of a hybrid. I sat in the newsroom at at the time, 1150 15th Street, right there at 15th and M. Mm-hmm. I sat in the post building, but was a dot com employee. This yeah. is when, it, I mean, it's again hard to imagine, but this is when the digital operation was separate yeah. from the print. It's like you and PK and Pershing was over there. There was a couple yep. of guys over there yep. with you, we right? Had a lot of Ed O'Keefe, who's now at CBS, was there. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, you know, for me, it was a real blessing in that it was it didn't have the sort of gravitas of the newspaper in the best possible way Mm -hmm. in that there wasn't a whole group of people who were sort of saying it has to, when you write, it has to look like this and sound like this and be like this. It was much more like just fiddling around. Somebody said to me one time, you know, what you were doing was building houses in a part of town nobody wanted to live in, but then it became the most popular part of town to live in, which I think is sort of true. Sounds right. I got to try stuff that I never would have been able to try had I just been like covering the White House for the Washington Post. You know, like I got to, I got to write with way more voice, do more audience interaction, um, just have more, like just have a, a freer, attempt at what journalism could look like right as journalism was changing mm-hmm. right i mean mm-hmm. it, it, this was you know in the mid 2000s uh and that was where journalism was sort of realizing that its old model of classified ads and print newspaper was not going to survive mm-hmm. and looking for the next thing it felt like I a tri- it felt like a trial when you guys first went over there too and then immediately it was clear that that was 
going to be the direction yeah. that everything was I mean, going. I it was amazing. I still remember people being like, you're going to work for WashingtonPost.com, not the Washington Post. And like at the time it was seen as like, uh, well, maybe this is a lateral move. Maybe this, <laughs> but you know, like, yeah. I think you have to try to see what the potential of a place is. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I worked there for 10 years. It was great. I had wonderful colleagues and, and loved working there. And then uh, the last four years I've been at CNN, which was really just about trying to, I was, I always said to the post people, I'm not really leaving the post because I'm unhappy. I, I love being there, but I wanted to put my TV stuff under the same roof as all my other stuff. Yeah. I was an MSNBC contributor at, when I worked at the post, but the issue there was like on election night, well, do you work for the post? Do you work for MSNBC? You know? I get it. And so I wanted to put it all in one place. And that was, you know, CNN has such a big reach in digital yeah. uh, as well as obviously a TV uh, station that mm -hmm. it felt like the right fit. Yeah. Sorry. That's a long, that's okay. Long winded way of that's saying good. My career. That's the whole point of this. That's the whole point in the conversation. Okay. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Um, so then, okay. So we have a book podcast and then you're also, you're editing and you're on TV like frequently yeah. doing a lot of that kind of stuff too. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's cool in that it, it it's all different muscles to exercise, mm -hmm. you know, yep. it, uh, doing television is very different than writing, mm -hmm. you know, doing TV is very much like a media and in the moment and, and, and writing, I think can be more reflective and, and offer you a little bit more chance to show your personality. But I, I sort of like, I guess I like that I can do a bunch of different things in a day. I can do the podcast. I can, um, write, which I still, if I had to choose the thing that I enjoy the most in my job, it's the, still the writing piece of it and mm -hmm. the talking to people and, and thinking about politics and trying to think of what to say and why. Yeah. Um, but I just think having those various buckets that you can sort of play in. And I think increasingly journalistically, we need to think of ourselves as like, we need to play in every place that there are people, mm -hmm. you know, I think we no longer, I, I don't really think there are very few exceptions that like a TV anchor, like they don't do anything else but anchor. I don't know that that is going to exist for that much longer. Like, look, uh, a good example is Jake Tapper. Like, yes, he's like our lead anchor, but he also has written a novel. He wrote the cover story for the Atlantic mm -hmm. recently. You know, like, I think that that's the, that's the, model for future journalists it's like swiss army knife you know you can do a lot of you can do a lot of a lot of different things mm -hmm. because i do think even even just if i only wrote for the website i think that there would be like well what else can you do here mm -hmm. you know i think you want to show as much value as you can and the way that you do that is by like going to where people are like people we know consume podcasts all right well let's make sure that if they like my writing, they have an option to consume my podcast. Or if they see me on TV, they know that I have a newsletter every single night that they can get. Yeah. Um, and trying to make all those things talk to each other. And they all, it all comes through. Honestly, like your personality comes through in all of them. And that I think is a very good mark of what you're what you're doing. So I mean that as a compliment, but it's really Thank fun because it feels fun and light and smart, but also sort of balanced in in the facts and history. And it's very it's cool from the outside watching. I think that the, the thing that I have is that I'm passionate about what I do. Mm -hmm. And I, in my view always is like, if you can't be excited about what you're doing, it's going to be hard to convince someone to read something that isn't or, or watch something or listen to something. Yeah. So I try to bring that to everything. Um, and the, the great thing about CNN is it's given me like the opportunity to do 
all sorts of different cool stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, whether it's a podcast or my YouTube show or the newsletter or just the writing or TV, like there's just a lot of, there's a lot of ways to farm out content uh, in ways that if you're me is gratifying. So if you're creating as much content as you are, you must mm-hmm. also be consuming content. So can you tell me one or two must reads for you in the morning? Like, what do you have to so, see? Yeah. So I, I, like a year ago, I set up a newsletters folder and made a bunch of rules that just the newsletters go in there. So I do read Axios. Uh, I do read Politico playbook mm-hmm. uh, every morning. Um, I read the New York Times newsletters. Um, I, I feel like it, the answer to your question is essentially newsletters plus Twitter. Got it. Uh, um, which, you know, who knows with Twitter, <laughs> but, but it is integral to, I think, my and many journalists, yeah. like how you collect news. Absolutely. Because everyone in our world operates on that. Mm-hmm. Politicians put out their statements on it. Uh, you know, there's back and forth on Twitter that becomes stories. So, but I would say, um, I think newsletters now have become my main source of kind of what I I look at. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true outside of politics too. New York Times has a newsletter called Watching, which is a TV and movies. Uh, oh, thing. So I use I'm putting it on my like, list. <laughs> yes, I use that as like the um, the newsletter to figure out what my wife and I should watch next. Yeah. Um, but I, I find that that is mostly. Uh, what I'm doing. I get the Sunday New York Times. I read the Sunday New York Times, like print New York Times, I get. Um, I try to read the post when I can just because it's, you know, the newspaper. It's not only the home newspaper of living in this area, but it's also where I worked for a decade and I know a lot of the people and know how good they are. Right. Um, But uh, that's, honestly, it's not that much more than that. I, I feel like, I feel like those things give me a good sense of, you know, one of the things I do every day is try to figure out, okay, where is the energy on the political internet and mm-hmm. what can I say interesting about that? Mm-hmm. And I think newsletters and Twitter give you a good sense of at least where the energy is. You, you always have to have it with a caveat, like, yes, 20, 20% of the public is on Twitter. So let's not pretend it's like everyone, but in terms of sniffing out a lead or something that might be interesting or a politician said something that's problematic for him or her, like I think it's really helpful in that regard. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And then you try to dive a little deeper or sort of put some emphasis on why that's important and sort of right. add the crystallizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I get and, that. And over time, I figured out what basically what my voice should be like. And, and you know, one of the things that I really value is the ability to write in non like newspaper speak. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I think it's really of value to be able to just to say stuff wow. um, and say, like, this is good. This is bad. I'm I'm a nonpartisan referee. I, I, this ad is bad because of X, Y and Z, not because it's a Republican ad, not because it's a Democratic ad, but just because it's a bad ad. In another episode, because we do 30 minutes here at the Friday Reporter, you and I are going to talk about what that voice gets you when you have critics that are coming to you on the Internet, because you see a lot of people, <laughs> a, lot of a lot of people coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I, I, in my best days, I think of that as it's a testament to my relevance. Mm-hmm. People don't come after irrelevant people on my worst days. It, I, I'm pretty thin skinned and it hurts my feelings. How can but you not be? I, I, I think people don't, I think people, you get to a certain point in, in, in your career and people don't see you as a human anymore. I don't think mm-hmm. they grasp that. Like the things they're saying is about another human who is just like, Hurtful. in my case, like just trying to do the best that you can. So yeah, that's a whole other, that's another episode. That, that's the three hour <laughs> podcast. Yeah, no doubt. 
Uh, all right. So f- final, final question uh, is, is yeah. always, who would, who would I talk to for a future episode? Who would you recommend? So I'm going to tell you someone who I think is, has had like a really fascinating career arc, uh, Sarah Seidner at CNN, S-I-D-N-E-R. Um, she's a correspondent. Uh, she briefly uh, uh, hosted a show on CNN Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's fascinating and interesting and will be, would be like a really thoughtful guest for you. Love it. I'm going to tell yeah. her you nominated her. Tell her I nominated her. I don't have any problem with that. (laughs) Chris Eliza, I'm thrilled to have you today. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.